Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we're getting back into our coverage of Wolf's novella, Tracking Song. This uh, was originally published in the collection In the Wake of Man in 1975. We, of course, have read it in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And this time we're going to be reading up to the section break on page 201. We're going to cover days 7, 8, and 9 of our narrator's journal. As usual, though, we do have a small announcements section before we get into the story coverage today. And this time we just want to check in with you you about our expectations for getting to the book of the new sun which you know we know is widely regarded as gene wolf's masterpiece and might be the reason that you are here uh, the good news is that we really will probably get to it this decade uh, but right now it looks like that that's going to be after the halfway point of 2023 so really about three years from now we have taken longer with some of these early works than we expected. I think we added eight episodes to our coverage of Fifth Head as we went. We have added at least one episode to every novella that we've covered in this batch so far, including this one. Uh, and that's not something I'm complaining about because I've been loving this very slow journey through Wolf's first decade of writing. Yeah, we've really gotten a deep sense of what Wolf is up to as a writer. I'm loving it because it's improved my writing in a huge way. I mean, really taking apart these stories and looking at them and looking at how you can construct a story, what you can put on it, what you can expect a reader to bear. I mean, all these things are great for craft, for understanding writing itself. But I also just think Wolf deserves the pace we've been going at. Uh, I'm just glad it also gives us, Glenn, a chance to uh, hang out once a week and talk about something we both love. And so I I'm excited to get to the book of the new sun as the next person, but uh, I'm also really just enjoying the, the pace with which we've been taking these stories. It's great. But there's a way for us to get to our goals faster to even get to book of the new sun faster and we do have a patreon goal that will get us to release an episode a week instead of every two weeks so if you love what we do and you want us to get to where you want us to go faster uh, think about supporting us on patreon or let people you know to do the same but let's get back to tracking song here last time we left off with learning about a new character called kim glowing she has joined the narrator Cutthroat on his quest to find the Great Slay. She is also going in the same direction. We learned a little of her backstory. She murdered the same man twice. And we're going to see where they're going and whether or not they can catch up with the Great Slay over the next three days. Right. We uh, we pick up on day seven after the narrator and Kim Glowing have hunkered down for the night. And we open with some of the particulars about their shelter, uh, how the narrator has learned from the Pamagaka and, and how his earth gear also is much warmer than Kim's furs, uh, even if her furs look far more impressive than his dumb coveralls do. Because she's going to be colder here in this shelter, the, the narrator lets Kim sleep nearest the fire. But then he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees that she's burned through all of the spare firewood because she's gotten cold. So naturally, he goes out to get some more. He feels bad for having left her to tend the fire in the first place. And here's where the plot is going to intrude in a, a, a genuinely Raymond Chandlerian fashion. It is all going to come crashing in hard. As the narrator is returning to their shelter with an armful of firewood, he notices something. And here's what Wolf writes. This has a bit of an elision in it. Both moons were in the sky, the snow glistened with their light, and the water, where it was free of ice, showed like snippets of black ribbon against it. At first I believed that I was hallucinating. The double shadows cast by the moons have deceived me before, 
But shadows, perhaps only the shadows of trees, as I thought, seemed clustered around our dying fire. But, right, they're not shadows. There are four of them, each at least three meters tall, and one of them has picked up Kim glowing from where she was sleeping near the fire. And in the light of the moon, he sees her face, and he sees her face looking whiter and more bloodless even than the snow. That's a great line there. And he drops his firewood, except for one large branch, and he rushes in to fight. But... It doesn't go well. He swings, he hits his target, but it's not flesh, it's, it's metal, and, and suddenly his body seems to just catch fire, and he sees the face of whatever it is that he's fighting here, and it looks like a nightmare. And then that's it. He lays in the snow for several hours, the, the pain is just so intense, his chest is seriously wounded, he has to, to tear apart the sail from his sled in order to bind his wound. And now he's faced with a tough decision. Should he pursue the bad guys and try to rescue Kim Glowing? Or should he continue after the Great Slay and then try to rescue her, perhaps with the help of his people? And in the end, he chooses to go after her right away. And in part, this is because he can no longer sail. And there's every chance that the Great Slay now is just going to outpace him. He's not going to be able to keep up. But it is also in part because now he's afraid that he really isn't actually one of the Great Slay people. That what Kim Glowing has said about him is true. And he points to the fact that no one seems to be looking for him, right? The the Great Slay hasn't stopped to wait or anything like that. And surely, if he were one of its crew, they would do that. And so, Day 7 ends with the narrator making camp after having followed these tall metal people, uh, following their footsteps all day. And one thing that I think we need to know before we move on to Day 8 is that the narrator now has the Endieva wand, and I just want to read the description because I think we will end up talking about this weapon quite a bit at some point, so here's what he says about it. In appearance, it is a straight stick, quite light in weight, about 50 centimeters long and 2 centimeters in diameter. The handle end is light brown in color, like the wood used in the club bow I used to have, and has a wrist thong. The striking end is black, with 8 or 10 stubby projections like thorns, which are nearly white. I have not used it as yet, and have been careful not to touch the dark end. So, all right, I have to say at this point, Brandon, this story has taken on some urgency, and some urgency that I did not expect. I mean, I called this Chandlerian, right? And I'm just thinking about Raymond Chandler's story advice, which is that if you don't know what's going on in your story, you don't know where to go next with it, uh, just have some people kick in the door with a gun, and that'll force you to do something, force you to solve that problem. And that's kind of what this feels like to me here. Yeah, I mean, Chandler wrote this advice in an essay called The Simple Art of Murder. And he, yeah, as he said, he said, when in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun in his hand. And Chandler here is is kind of giving some reading advice, but he's referring to the reader's appetite for, for constant action and the types of stories that he was writing and the genre that he was writing. And that's actually re- the really good writing advice here is if you're writing a genre story of any kind, where you understand the reader expectations and you're bogged down by something else, such as, you know, the uh, amount of firewood it needs to keep a person warm at night or building a hut or something like that, return to the genre with the tools of the genre. And that's just what Wolf does here. Even though Wolf makes it seem so unexpected, uh, you know, at, at, as Chandler says at the end of this quote in this essay, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. He says something like, you might not have the best written story on your hands, but you're going to have a publishable story. And I think Wolf is the master of balancing uh, the best written story and the publishable story. And you just see that on display here. It's a, it's a great moment in this story. And while we're talking about kind of the urgency that this story has taken on, I mean, Cutthroat says point blank that he is in a nightmare. 
you know, before we've seen him go through this world as a predator, or at least approached as a predator, even as he hunts creatures he can communicate with, but now he is potentially prey. And, and these things that took Kim glowing have no interest in him as a person or don't even address his personhood on any level of their hunting activity. They are pure predators to him. And he's experiencing life as the weaker animal here for the first time. And it's almost too much to bear. And not to mention the fact that he's, he's wounded badly. So all of this is contributing to like, he's got to get help. He's got to rescue the damsel in distress here. There's a lot he has to do. And Wolf does something with this damsel in distress trope uh, that I think is interesting because at the beginning of the journal entry here we get Cutthroat saying like I I have her sleep next to the fire not because she's a woman I don't really believe in any of that stuff in terms of like you know who should get comfort or whatever who's uh, the weaker sex it's it's just simply pragmatic because he has warmer clothes and then Wolf kind of puts that into the story and then gives us this damsel in distress trope and it's just great i mean he's just doing this hero's journey stuff so well and playing with these tropes in such an excellent way and and it gets us to think that you know cutthroat was going after kim glowing as part of his ethical journey not just because he he can't bear to go on thinking that he's left some woman in distress and i think wolf is balancing all this stuff really well Right. And the, the injury here as well, right? This this serves to sort of depower him because up to this point, I mean, you, you know, you made a Superman joke, I think, in the, the first episode because the guy can bound, right? And he's he's on a planet with much lower gravity than the planet he's from. He's on a planet with much lower gravity than Earth. And so he's strong and fast and more physically capable than the other people that he's meeting. He needs to be brought down in such a way that the obstacles are going to be really obstacles, that the stakes are going to be really stakes because so far, the only real obstacle has been the environment that this has actually been a man versus nature story but now it's going to be a a a man versus man story a person versus person story here but he needs to be brought down to the level of the other people around here and wolf has done this without even really calling attention to it and so it just ratchets up the stakes and and then gives some some limitations and gives some some internal obstacles for our protagonist here it's a real moment of vulnerability and We've seen before he's physically wounded that Kim has exposed his insecurities about the situation as well, sort of psychologically wounding him, wounding him. And it's really great character work that Wolf is doing here. You know, Cutthroat has just experienced an event that demonstrates to him just how much he doesn't know about the world he's in and how much he doesn't actually know about the world he believes he's come from. And while he hasn't entered the part of the hero's journey where he's descended into the underworld yet this type of event this wounding or exposure of vulnerabilities this is the sort of the thing that that precipitates just such a descent you know wolf really knows his hero's journey very well and he's doing an excellent job of burying it in this story and we're going to see that as we go. We're going to see some of the ways that he he undermines that and plays with that trope. I mean, as we've seen him do every time that he has done it, that's going to be a lot of fun to, to do in the discussion. But uh, I think for now, let's do day eight. This is uh, a pretty short entry. We'll, we'll make quick work of this one. Uh, in the morning, the narrator awakes to find a snow monkey watching him from a tree, and he throws the Endieva wand at it, though this causes him some pain from his chest wound. And 
this action here, this gives the narrator, it also gives us a, a, a glimpse into how this weapon functions, right? Setting up the, the rules of this weapon so that it can become an important feature in the story here. And the, the wand hits the monkey, but it really just surprises and annoys this creature, which just jumps to another tree. But then after a few seconds, it begins to have difficulty holding on. And then in another few seconds, it falls to the ground, but it doesn't die. And the narrator writes this. It was still alive and rolled its little eyes at me so that it seemed to beg for mercy. Now, the monkey does die on its own here, and the narrator even eats it. And, and we had some monkey eating, or at least almost monkey eating, in The Death of Dr. Island as well, by the way. So, so the narrator eats the monkey, but I'm really struck here by the way in which she anthropomorphizes the, the monkey in this line, right? It has emotions, it has desires, it even seems to communicate with him. And these are all things that up to now, the narrator has regarded as rendering something a person but that doesn't actually seem to count here. And I'm looking forward to taking this up in the discussion episode, why this snow monkey is not a, a person and these other creatures are. But what we're really meant to glean from this is that the wand does something to slowly incapacitate and kill you if it if it hits you. And the narrator thinks of this as poison, but he does then turn around and eat the monkey, uh, seemingly without any negative effects. So poison might not be the real mechanism here, or I might just not know anything about poisons. I mean, I'm not actually a trained assassin. I just put that on my business cards, you know. But uh, <laughs> but all right, that that is breakfast. So now it is time to get on the road, to go after Kim Glowing here, to get on this part of the hero's journey here. Uh, the narrator follows the tracks of the, the these tall metal people into a cleft in a cliff, which uh, which turns out to be the entrance into a, a massive underground world. It's hard not to be thinking of Goblin Town at this moment. It is completely dark in here uh, past the entrance, and he uses a lighter for a while, but then he realizes, you know, that's basically a sign that just says, come kill me. And so he turns the lighter off. Uh, it's also warm in here, and he even has to start undoing some of his winter clothing. Most importantly, though, is his emotional state, his psychological state here. Something about this place makes him feel closer to the Great Slay, and, and here's what he says. It's as though this entrance into this hidden place is somehow a return to the kind of life I led before the Wagiki found me in the snowbank. It is difficult to describe. I have a tired confidence, as if I knew my own powers and limitations, what I can do and cannot do. I think we're going to want to speculate about this at, at some point, but I think let's hold off for just a moment here and, and, and narrate the, the action sequence that closes out day eight. Because as he's walking through the hidden place here, this this underground world in search of Kim Glowing, he's set upon by some creatures. He calls them vampires, and he describes them as bats with human faces and, and hairless bodies. Uh, and, and we can even get some more of their physical description here. This is going to be important to us in the discussion episode. I think now that we know that we're going to be trying to identify, try to graft on some some totems, I guess, some animal totems onto each of these uh, these species here, these humanoid species that we encounter. So their wingspan is about a meter, and they have enough sexual dimorphism that the, the narrator can tell the difference between male and female just by looking at their faces. Their arms and their fingers are, are what form their wing, and, and they have very long fingers, in fact, with some webbing between them. And the wings and arms, they're, they're quite bat-like, but their legs are different. They're not like the legs of, of bats as, as we know them here, uh, you know, in our world. Uh, rather than being short, as one would expect, they're actually quite long and quite slender. And these creatures run with a great deal of agility. Their feet have properties of both a human hand and the talons of a bird. And this lets them cling to the stalactites in the roof of the cavern, which is where they have drops, you know, onto the, the narrator here. 
They have also blue eyes. That's a bit strange. And and big pointed teeth. Uh, The teeth even seem too big for their mouths here. And one more thing to note about their bodies is that they they eat fish from a little stream that runs through the cavern. Uh, They catch these fish by standing on one leg and, and using the other leg as a kind of spear. All right, so that's the the description of these vampires. Let's just do the action here real quickly, and then we'll pause and try to digest all of this. All that really happens here is that several of them assault him, but he uses the wand against them, and this incapacitates them, and then he just moves on. He he finds a little hiding place to rest and to, to recover from the shock of all of this, and that is actually where he's recording this journal entry that ends day eight. Yeah, these creatures are fascinating. They're bat-like, but they hunt like herons. So we're getting both bat and bird imagery. And and you're right. That is something we'll have to consider uh, for the totemic nature of these creatures if we can find the the right analog. I love that you keep drawing these connections to The Hobbit here. I think it's hilarious. I don't know Tokens works as well as you do. So uh, unless a fantasy is obviously derivative of Tolkien I just miss any reference to him and we know that Wolf was a big Tolkien fan and that he's definitely drawing on that but as I kind of hinted at before for me what I just see is the the kind of descent uh to the underworld part of the hero's journey we're there now this is Cutthroat's underworld and that's what's happening in in terms of the structure of the novella But then we also get this bit with Cutthroat ruminating about the cave and returning to the type of life he lived before the Wagiki found him. And that should give us reason to pause, because if this is the descent of the underworld part of the story, uh, why does Cutthroat have this great sense of belonging as he kind of begins to encounter what's in the cave? And this speaks to his mounting doubt about whether or not he came from the Great Slay at all. And we as readers and Cutthroat himself may be encountering another option that could give us the reason for the cave's city's existence in the first place, which is something we're not really going to be able to get into. It's something we'll want to take up in the discussion episode, though, for sure. But it is important to keep in mind that Cutthroat will demonstrate a sort of instinctual understanding of this cave city, this new place in a way that he really just did not have with the tribes in the above world. And if we're thinking about worlds stacked on each other, uh, we also kind of have to think about Kim Glowing's cosmology as well. So I think Wolf is just doing an enormous amount uh, to, to enrich the layers and depth of the story here, and it's wonderful. Yeah, and it's about to get even more detailed here as well. But I like that you're you're pointing out the the cosmology of Kim Glowing and how that maps on here. And you know, there's a there's a connection there with a, a much later and I think more famous work of Wolf's. Right, the, the Wizard Knight takes up some of these same types of ideas uh, with you know more intensity and at, at greater length, uh, which is that's going to be real fascinating to 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 do when we get there. I mean, literally decades from now, of course. And uh, I don't know, someday along that journey, we'll uh, we'll we'll get you to read some more Tolkien. I don't know, maybe we can we can uh, do the Hobbit as a, a limited Patreon series or something someday. But I will say, you know, we just read the Hobbit to our new baby here recently, so it's fresh in my mind. So I'm just seeing Hobbit parallels uh, uh, absolutely everywhere. Bilbo. You know, he has three different descents into the underworld in in that story, and each of them are, are different. I, it would be fun to talk uh, with that about you, just to do a kind of like, I don't know, just a hero's journey reading of Bilbo's quest there would be a, a fun thing to do as kind of a extra Patreon thing. So maybe we'll, oh, maybe we'll do that someday. 
Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, let's get to day nine. This is going to be the last day that we're going to do this episode. And this is shaping up, I think, to be a, a significantly shorter episode than the previous two. Is we're, we're really just setting up for the climax of day 10, which is what we're going to cover next time. It's all we're going to cover next time is going to be day 10. And this entry here for day nine begins as the, the narrator has settled down on a ledge in the cavern wall for the night. And from here, he can look out at the city. And this is, again, right, a masterful way to open this section. Just awesome storytelling. Prior to this, there was simply no indication that this was anything other than a cavern. But now, suddenly, we've got a civilization in here, right? This entry is going to tell us about a city here in this massive cave complex. And it quickly becomes clear to us, though, that this is a city in ruins. It's uninhabited now, uh, at least uninhabited by the people who built it. And so really, we've kind of gone from Goblin Town to, to Moria here, if we want to keep thinking in Tolkien terms. And the <laughs> description that we get is is awesome. So uh, let's just let's just read that here. It is ghostly in appearance, even from here, because the buildings have no walls or roofs. They are only skeletons of metal built as though to enable the builders to pile one floor above another, so that the cave itself is their roof and their climate. The effect they give is one of having rotted away, and there are sections of walls clinging to them still, here and there. There are some lights from this city, which is how he can see it, but they're they're pale and, and, and dim, and I think it's fair to say that we're talking about skyscrapers, or, or maybe the architectural descendants of skyscrapers here. We're not talking about some kind of ancient stone city, uh, something really to, that was constructed with more sophisticated technology than that, right? This is not a Lovecraftian moment here. It's not Cyclopean stone architecture. And so the question is, who built this? And when did they build it? And as the narrator explores, he begins to think really in terms of hundreds or, or maybe even thousands of years. There's just nothing organic left in this city. Everything has rotted away and rotted away so long ago as to leave just no trace except for one packet of some kind of amino acid cube that he's able to dissolve into a satisfying nutrient broth. Right? There's, there's some space food that has survived, but like just one cube of it. And the technological sophistication here is confirmed for us when the, the narrator discovers that the city is, in fact, littered with metal machines. They're defunct, they're disabled, all except one of them. And we'll get to that one in just a moment. But first, I want to read the description of these machines, right? This is really one of the areas where Wolf excels. I think we all agree on that. So let's just read this here. Most were quite incomprehensible to me. All seemed very old. Some had windows of glass, but these were dead and dark. Some were shaped like travesties of men, others like strange animals with jointed bodies. So, all right, so the, the one machine that is still functioning, it is human-like, at least in its, its broad contours, a torso, head, arms, but it's much larger than a human. It has wheels for legs, and its arms are, are very long with, with hooks for hands. But the most important thing is that it speaks, and it speaks the narrator's language, though it does so with some complexities in the pronunciation of certain words. And I, I think this note is meant to suggest age as, as well. It's meant to suggest to us that since this machine was programmed to speak, the pronunciation of the language had shifted a little bit, though there are certainly other explanations than, than that for what's going on here. And the, the machine is looking for instructions from the narrator, who, of course, has no idea what to say to it, what to even ask it to do. And so he just says that he's looking for food, and he asks the machine to take him to find some food. Uh, now, of course, he was hoping to just follow the machine here, but instead the machine scoops him up, 
places him in a basket on top of his head. It's, it's a basket that's clearly designed for this purpose. And it turns out, right, there's no food left in the food cart that he takes him to. That is to say, nothing except for these broth cubes, which is enough, it turns out. There's a, a handful of them. And that is really the end of the action here. That's the end of day nine. Narratively, there's actually not a lot happening for us in this episode and especially not on this day, but we are setting the stage for things to come. And in terms of the hero's journey, I suppose we, we may have found here an ally to help with the rescuing of Kim Glowing, right? If we're, we, we know that we're in the descent to the underworld, one of the other things that needs to be happening here is the gathering of allies. And it seems like this robot is going to be one. Yes, one of maybe a few we'll meet in the next episode, which I'm excited to get to because day get, because day ten is just a, a great bit of adventure writing. I I love uh, that Wolf has included food cubes here. It's one of my favorite science fiction tropes of all time. I can't explain why that's the case. It just tickles me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think it might just be that I like the phrase food cubes, but you know, it's not a place in my mind I'm willing to really examine that closely. One thing I do like that Wolf does with food cubes in this story is that he makes them purposeful, and they're not just used as some sort of like way of explaining away why protagonists don't need to worry about being humans who get hungry in a post-scarcity society or something like that. I mean, it's more like the Lemba, the gift of Lemba's bread in Lord of the Rings here, this finding of the food cubes. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that. I spent too much time talking about it just now, but uh, I, I love f- food cubes. But one thing that really jumps out to me in, in terms of reading this story as a sort of totem story, which we've seen that Wolf has mentioned in the interview with Gene Wolf, and it's kind of become the main rallying point of a lot of the discussion around this story, is that readers of the story are really interested in what the tribes on the planet represent in terms of their like animal spirit guide to, to guide the hero on the journey, on his quest. And yet we have this robot that is just a robot, and we're going to meet other characters that have more in common with the type of man maybe that Cutthroat is a little bit later on. And one thing I do want to think about is whether or not the robot is a stand-in for anything totemic, whether Wolf is taking the idea of totems and kind of moving them into a technological reality. So that's something I just think it's important to keep in mind. I also have to say that even though, you know, this is a hero's journey and we're doing the descent into the underworld bit, this whole business with the underground city caught me completely off guard while I was reading through the story. I think Wolf does an excellent job, as we've pointed out, of hiding the kind of fabric of the hero's journey here in the story or the seams of it. And he does it to such a degree that something like this section and the sections coming up feel so odd and completely out of place in the way he's framed this story as a survival story that it's just unimaginably exciting on a first read to be trying to guess where the story is going to go next and know that you can't because having a technologically advanced underground city is not something anybody would have expected to find in a story like this. And there are more unexpected things to come. Right. I mean, everything up to this point has felt like a Jack London story, right? This has been one of the Klondike stories or it's been the call of the wild or white fang, something like that. And now suddenly it is a sort of star Wars meets the Orpheus 
story. And that's a total surprise. We're just completely not expecting it. And then, of course, it's got also this whole element here of this sort of long lost civilization. So there's some, I don't know, not quite Indiana Jones going on here. I, I guess something, some other kind of archaeologist story going on here. Then maybe that is Lovecraftian, even though we're not talking about Cyclopean stones here. And the way that Wolf is mashing all of this up, which is what Wolf does so well, is mash up all of these, these genres and really master these long, great literary traditions, uh, is really just exciting, right? Just as we're getting comfortable with what type of story this is, he pulls that out from us and gives us another type of story. And I think we can expect that that's going to happen at least one more time before we are done with this novella. Well, I'm excited to get there, but we're going to have to wait to next episode to talk about it. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of day seven through nine of Tracking Song. And if you'd like to support the network and help us make more podcasts and also help us get to Book of the New Sun more quickly by doubling the number of episodes we release uh, per month on this show, please do check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Every pledge we get is a massive help. Next time, we're going to be back with part four of Tracking Song. We're going to read up to page 217. It's going to be the biggest chunk of the story that we do, and it's going to be only day 10, which is a very long, very involved uh, episode here in this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.